Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Speaking of that, uh, we have a, a kind of mission statement here that's on our website that's very simple, very easy to remember, but it's, it's, it's exactly who we are. We are. Our mission is to love God, love people, be discipled, and make disciples. It really is that simple. And that's what we're about. And that's what we've been focusing on in our series through this summer on Back to the Basics. For the first half of the summer, really, we've been placing our emphasis on the first couple of statements there, the first half, love God, love people. And now, today, that, that's shifting. We're going to have some overlap today, but we're shifting to the second half of that statement, be discipled and make disciples. But what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Well, as we're going to see, Jesus didn't want his followers guessing about this, kind of trying to, you know, just come up with their own idea, going off on tangents somewhere, even though, frankly, both history and current events around the world tell us that many have gone off track on this and have lost track of what it is to be a devoted disciple of Jesus. We're going to try and get back to that through this Back to Basics series. First, we need to back the truck up to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is what happens there. The Bible tells us that he was a carpenter following in the footsteps of his earthly father, Joseph. Joseph is not mentioned during this part of Jesus' life. And so we're led to conclude, just by uh, the fact that he's absent, that he has already passed on. But there's no knowing that for sure. That's just our assumption. Many did not live to what we would call a ripe old age like me. Back then, it was, uh, life was tough. Back then, there were many things that came along that shortened people's lives. At any rate, when Jesus was 30 years, by the way, that was a, you were supposed to laugh when I said old people like me, you know, like, come on. <laughs> life was tough back then. Uh, and Jesus, when we join this story, is 30 years old. He's just been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. After and then right after that, he goes into a, a temptation period with the devil who, who tries to get him to shortcut his trip to the top, if you will, the trip to being worshipped. And uh, it takes, he wants, the devil wants to take Jesus off his path to Jerusalem, his path to the cross. But, of course, Jesus resists. And he begins then his public ministry. And one of the first things we're told as the narrative of his life unfolds is that he proceeds to gather a group of guys who he could train. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. A fairly familiar passage to many of us. This whole encounter is so short, however, that we almost pass right by it and go, well, okay. But in this encounter, I believe, lies the foundation to understanding what radical discipleship is and what being a Christ follower is supposed to look like. Before we take a deeper look at this story, allow me to give you just a little background here. When we read of this encounter with Jesus, it can almost seem that Peter and Andrew were overcome in some mindless kind of trance, like, you know, these amazing words came and they just dropped everything. And all that Jesus had to do basically was snap his fingers and they were off. 
This is likely not the case if we bring in John's gospel. Jesus had likely been around well before he called Peter and Andrew. In John 1, 35 to 42, and I'll let you kind of look at the whole passage, for instance, it talks about Peter and Andrew, Andrew first, actually, hearing of Jesus, going to meet Jesus, introducing himself to Jesus, then going to get Peter to also introduce him to Jesus. Jesus was a known figure in the community, and they had almost certainly heard the, uh, the stories of him already, and it certainly required an immense amount of courage and faith to follow him. I'm not belittling that at all. But they would have at least had a glimpse of who he was, a sense that at the very least, God had his hand on him. They would have heard John the Baptist perhaps say, there, look, the Lamb of God. And then this encounter... What's going on here is that Jesus is inviting these two brothers into a relationship with him, to be radical followers of him. But here's the key. Jesus understood human nature well enough to know that before someone can make a radical decision to follow something, to take hold of something, to grab onto it and not let go, they first have to make a radical decision to let something go. Because they're fishermen, he uses the metaphor of their nets to describe what they need to let go. But this was much deeper than Jesus telling them to quit their fishing business. Their nets represented, actually, what was at the center of their heart. Would, would that get in the way of their pursuit of Jesus is what this is all about. You see, every one of us is like Andrew and Peter in that we have at least one net, perhaps more, one net that we cling to that prevents us from being devoted disciples. It doesn't matter if you're on the front end of your spiritual journey just still trying to figure out who, it, who God is or if you've been a follower of Christ most of your life and you can quote the Bible back and forth. Every one of us has a tendency towards nets, towards nets that we cling to that entangle our pursuit of Jesus. So if we truly want to be fully devoted disciples, which I believe we do, we must first identify and then drop our nets. Do we have such a thing in our day, you might be asking. You bet we do, and we haven't lost the term even completely, have we? We refer to them now as our safety nets, right? Well, that's pretty risky. Have you got a safety net? Oh, do you want to drop everything and do that? Do you have a safety net, a backup plan, a plan B? This may sound like a simple concept, but it is anything but. Let me give you just a few examples of our common safety nets that we can get all tangled up in. This is by no means exhaustive, and I would encourage you to, to go home to do some work in front of your mirror. If you're already home, then it's a short trip. And just work on this to identify what nets you're holding onto in your life. What if Jesus were to stand before you today and say, just drop it, just let it go. Come, follow me. Could you? Would you? Would he ask you such a thing? Absolutely he would, if he thought that net was standing between you and being a devoted disciple of his. We need look no further than scripture. 
When Jesus would meet someone, he would almost always begin by helping them to identify the net that they were enmeshed in. And quite often, of course, that had sin attached to it in some way. We see this example in Luke 18 as Jesus has an encounter with someone whose name we are never, ever given. The only background information we're given about him is that he has a high moral standard and that he has followed that since he was a little boy, and that now he's a man of great wealth. He comes up to Jesus looking for assurance that his good behavior is equivalent to full devotion to God. He says to Jesus, I'm a a good person. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen. I have honored my parents. Surely this is enough to qualify me as a devoted follower of God. But Jesus comes at that devotion issue from a completely different angle, and he says, well, you know, following the rules is a good start, but you still lack one thing. You're still holding on to a net. Trade the earthly possessions you have, trade them now for a heavenly reward later, and give the profits that you get now to the poor, and then come and follow me. Jesus was not trying to say that full devotion to God requires everyone to give up all their wealth. That's taking this completely out of context. Instead, he sizes up this rich young ruler very quickly, and he can see that what his net is, what he's clutching onto, is the net of materialism. And he's unwilling to let it go. Jesus could see that if it came down to a contest between following God or retaining his net, retaining his wealth, that the wealth would win hands down. So, you know, one of the early questions here for us is, do we have that kind of a net, a net that we will hang on to in preference that would win in a contest between it and following God? So while this rich young ruler is a good person who's following the rules, he had still yet a net that he needed to drop. It was materialism if he was going to be a fully devoted disciple. Unfortunately, of course, this rich young ruler took the opposite path that Peter and Andrew took earlier. Luke 18 says that the man was very sad when Jesus said this to him because he loved his net. He loved his possessions. The cost of dropping his net was too high, and he decided, at least at that point in time, not to follow Jesus. We never do find out his name, and I find it intriguing that while we don't know eventually what happened to him, how we now identify him as he now fades off into the sunset, never to be heard from again, is by the safety net he was unwilling to let go of, the rich young ruler. Another encounter is described in John 3. But the nets of this person were much different than the rich young rulers. In this encounter, we're given a name. Jesus encounters a man named Nicodemus. And he was one of the most respected religious leaders in the community where Jesus lived. But despite his religious heritage, Nicodemus knew there was something different about Jesus, something Jesus had that he did not. So he came and he found Jesus one night under the cloak of darkness so that no one would see him and discover that he was actually questioning the belief system that he'd been raised with. He says to Jesus, I've watched you teach the people, I've seen you perform miracles that no one else could do unless God is with him. 
But instead of basking in the praises of Nicodemus here or explaining, well, frankly, this is how those miracles happened, Jesus turns it back to him. He could size up already the net that Nicodemus is hanging on to, the net of radical uh, you know, religion, kind of just as this is it. Religion is it. He decides that's, he, he just knows that's what his net is. You've got the net of religiosity. He tells them it's not how many good deeds you do or a religious system that ultimately determines your devotional level. You are going to have to drop your net of religiosity and follow God by faith instead, trusting that I am the one that God has sent to save and to guide the world. Now, we're not told for sure how Nicodemus responds to this challenge, but he was one of the first ones to help bury Jesus after, after uh, he uh, was crucified, which seems to indicate that Nicodemus really did drop his net of religiosity and follow Jesus. Do you see that there's so many different kinds of nets that we hang on to? Each one of us privately probably holds on to at least one net, if not more, so close to our heart that it undermines our ability to follow Jesus. If you're sitting there thinking, why am I not following him more closely? Go look in the mirror and ask Jesus what net you're still hanging on to. For the rich young ruler, it was money. For Nicodemus, it was the net of religion. Many have admitted to me that the net that entangles them is the net of comfort. When they sense Jesus saying, drop your nets and follow me, their first response is to assess the potential discomfort level that's going to come into their life. If it's going to throw off their well-set routine, they would rather be comfortable than follow Jesus. And you've heard me say through this series a few times already, God is way more interested in our character than he is in our comfort. Sometimes the nets we cling to can be a behavior pattern. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with young adults who, when I talk to them about this, say something like, I don't know, maybe God is out there, maybe we're supposed to be fully devoted disciples of Jesus, but in order to do that authentically, I would need to let go of living with my girlfriend or boyfriend, and I'm just not ready to give that up. I don't want to let go of my net. One of the more subtle nets that we have trouble dropping is the net of control. What is your reaction when you sense Jesus nudging you out of sort of the, the safe zone? What is your reaction when you see Jesus nudging you to move towards submitting in full devotion to him? I think for most of us, most of us our knee-jerk reaction is to like, well, wait a minute. Something in us desires to be de devoted disciples, but at the same time, there's another part of us that gets entangled in the fear of losing control. Truth be told, we're hesitant even of the idea that the Holy Spirit can invade us and be the one who directs our life. We long for a sense of adventure and meaning in our lives. We were created for this, but we just don't think that's going to happen if we're devoted Christians. Somewhere along the line, we've bought into the lie. If we want to be involved in a fast-paced, high-stake activity, it's not going to happen in the church. Jesus knew that the only way that we would truly find adventure and fulfillment, however, all that life truly offers is to let go of our nets, let go of our nets of comfort and control and follow him. 
And this scene just keeps getting repeated over and over again through Scripture. Many times in Scripture, it tells us that he invited people to become his disciples. In Matthew 9, 9, it says this. As Jesus was going down the road, he saw Matthew sitting in his tax collection booth, probably counting his money. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said. So Matthew got up and followed him. Today, Jesus makes this exact same offer to you and to I to come and be his disciple. He's asking you on this midsummer day, come, be my disciple. So first, let's make sure we know exactly what a disciple is. The word disciple comes from the Latin word disciplus. In the Greek, it's the word methetis, which is in the Bible. That's the Greek translation, which the Bible uses in the New Testament. It means a student, a learner, an apprentice, just straight out like that. A disciple isn't one who's arrived, you see. A disciple is one who is on the journey. A disciple is a journeyman, is an apprentice. When a mentor takes on somebody to train, they are called their disciple. If you're training, you have a supervisor who's training you. You are being discipled by the supervisor. Moses' disciple was Joshua. Elijah's disciple was Elisha. David's disciple was his son Solomon. Elisha had many disciples of his own, so did John the Baptist. Paul had a disciple named Timothy. And later he talks about six guys who travel with him on the road. He tells us who the guys he's mentoring are. A disciple is somebody simply who's being mentored by somebody else. That's the first way it's used and most commonly used in the Bible. The second way it's used in the Bible is to physically and specifically refer to the 12 disciples, the 12 guys that Jesus chose who are called apostles in other places as well. The third way occurs in the book of Acts. There, disciple is simply used as a synonym for what we would now call believers or Christians. In the Bible days, they weren't called Christians, as I've mentioned before. They were called people of the way or disciples. In fact, it wasn't until the church had spread completely out of what we now know as Israel into Antioch, where at a little church there, the believers were first called Christians. So in those early days, if you had decided to follow and sit under Jesus' teaching, you would not have been called a Christian. You would have been called a disciple. But what I want us to look at this weekend and next is Jesus' use of the term. Jesus frequently took a very common word like student, pupil, disciple, apprentice, and adds new meaning to it. He infuses it with sort of divine inspiration. He injects new meaning into it. So I want to look at Jesus' definition of what it means to be a disciple, to be a devoted follower. Because about 10 times in Scripture, Jesus says, if you do this, then you're going to be my disciple. You will be my disciple. If you do this, then you are a follower of mine. Not only are we going to look at that, but when you understand what Jesus says it means to be a disciple, you're going to understand why we do everything we do here at Southland. Everything we offer, every sermon that's taught, every program that comes through, every event that we plan, every tool we create, everything we do is to help us all become disciples of Jesus, to do these things and then to turn around and become mentors discipling others. This list is by no means meant to be exhaustive and some will be painfully, at least I hope they will be painfully, obvious. We'll bite off a few this week and continue on next week as well. 
First and foremost, number one, to be disciples, we must spend time with Jesus. Yeah, you go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of knew that already. See, we do need to think about this, though. We must spend time with Jesus, a lot of time with him. Because like any relationship, the more you invest, the more time you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. Here's the thing. I don't think there's anything, there's no such thing as a part-time disciple. I'm a part-time apprentice. I'm a part-time this. You don't fit being a fully devoted disciple of Christ into your schedule. You don't just kind of look at your schedule and say, I think I can bump five minutes here. I think I can place a little more. I can stay up another half hour, get up a half hour. I can just fit being a disciple into my schedule. I don't think that's what this is all about. If I'm, going to, if I'm being trained by somebody, if I'm being mentored by somebody, I fit myself into their schedule, not the other way around. They don't fit themselves into mine, then they're following me. You've got to be prepared to let go of your net and just follow, just devote time. You also can't be a disciple in just a few minutes a day. You've got to spend time. You've got to be in constant conversation. It's a full-time responsibility, actually, being a disciple. You're with your discipler. You're supposed to be with them all the time. You're with your mentor. You're with your teacher, your trainer. You want to spend as much time as you possibly can. Now, a few years ago now, I was very blessed and privileged to be invited along with a half dozen others or so pastors from across North America to be mentored for a solid week by a pastor named and author named Wayne Cordero, who leads a very large church called New Hope in Honolulu, Hawaii. Did I want to come was the question. Ah, tough gig. Hawaii in February. Let me think about this for, all right. I'm in, right? I'll go get the tickets now. The timing also happened to coincide with our 25th wedding anniversary, so I was happy that I could kind of be the you know, big man and let's go to Hawaii, darling. And we were able to go and we planned to do some sightseeing in our spare time. We arrived in Honolulu mid-afternoon, shocked to find at least at that time, that the airport had no glass in the windows, no doors at all. If you've been to a tropical place, you understand this. For us, it was a shock, right? It was all open to the outside, 24-7. Yep, we were from Canada. We rented a car, and the only question was, what color do you want? And, oh, you, we don't have a choice of car? No, everybody gets Mustangs. Okay, tough gig again, right? Mustang convertibles, that's the deal. Unfortunately, when we got to the Mustang, we're looking at our, you know, industrial-sized, super-sized traveler suitcases, and we're going, we can't even get one of these into this sucker's trunk. It's not happening, right? So we spent a good half hour trying to stuff these suitcases in behind the front seats of our bright yellow Mustang. Shortly thereafter, we're on the road into downtown Honolulu when another couple passes us also with big suitcases stuffed into their car, except they're sticking straight up. I suddenly realized ah, we could have taken the top down. <laughs> oh! Yep, everyone in the parking lot knew we were from Canada. In February, you do not take the top down of a convertible. 
We got to our, our hotel for check-in, and there was a little area set up to welcome us, and, and sort of, you know, here you are, and here's the itinerary for the week. And I looked at it, after I got up off the floor, I was like, I can't believe this. This can't be right. I'm being picked up at the hotel at 5.30 in the morning to go running on the beach for an hour? What had I done? I'd signed up to be a disciple. I'd signed up to follow Wayne Cordero around for a week, and the first thing he did each and every day, did I think he was taking this literally? I hadn't thought about it till now. The first thing he does each and every day is he goes for a fast run along the beach for an hour in the total darkness. I hadn't even brought running shoes. I had a vision at that moment, a vision, a, a, a prophetic kind of word, a, a vision of headlines back here in Manitoba. Local pastor dies while foolishly running on the beach at 5.30 in the morning in Hawaii. Then the schedule went on to say that I would be following Wayne every moment each day until I was brought back to the hotel at 9.30 in the evening. Happy anniversary, honey. Have a great time in Hawaii. <laughs> On the last day, and, you know, I mean, there was parts of that word that were fantastic. I mean, devotions, and then we were in production meetings for their services. We were going around to the schools that they rent for their, I mean, it was, it was, it was a whirlwind. I'm still, you know, processing some of it 15 years later. But on that last day that we had with him, we find ourselves yet again in the van and we're traveling someplace and we get out by the ocean and there's two outrigger canoes there and there's these, I mean, you can picture it, right? Big, burly Hawaiian guys and it's like, okay, we're, it's a race. We're going to be in this outrigger canoe and the rest of you guys from North America, you're going to be in that canoe and we're going to find out who's really got the stuff and who doesn't? And we're going to go around that buoy out. Oh, you need binoculars? Okay, see that buoy wait out there? Yeah, yeah. Pay no attention to the shark fins. They're out there. Yes. Okay, that's where we're going, and then we're coming back. And I thought, wow, when you sign up for something, you really sign up when you sign up as an apprentice, when you sign up to be mentored, when you sign up as a disciple. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 12. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And if they follow me, the Father will honor them. This verse is packed with meaning. In fact, it teaches us three things about being a disciple. Please make note of these because they're crucial. Number one, we learn that being a disciple involves a choice. God's not going to force you to sign up. He doesn't come with a gun. They didn't say, if you don't go to Hawaii, I mean, you're, you're dead. No, I, I willingly signed up, right? God's not forcing you to sign up as his disciple. He leaves it up to us. Anyone who wants to be my disciple, you must make a choice. You've got to want it. Being a disciple is an intentional act. It's not something that just happens. It's not involuntary. involuntary. It's not inevitable. <laughs> I just walked into the church. Next thing I know, I'm a card-carrying disciple. No. 
You have to choose to let go of your nets and follow. Jesus says, I'm giving you the choice. See, you're as close, we all are as close to God as we want to be. Don't blame your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parents, your husband, your wife. Don't blame your boss. Don't blame the weather. Don't blame your circumstances. You are as close a follower of Christ as you choose to be. If you're not close to him, then it works that it's because you're not choosing to be. If you feel far from God, guess who moved? Not God. You made some choices. Being a disciple is your choice. Secondly, being a disciple is a commitment. Notice Jesus says, you must come and follow. First he said, you've got to want it. Then you've got to come and follow. If you want to be a devoted disciple, you can't just sit there. You've actually got to move. You've got to get it in gear and not just sit on your rear. You have to be committed to this. Your commitments are important because your commitments define your life. You actually are the sum total of the things that you're committed to. What does is, what is that equation work out to in your life? Here's the problem. You can't be committed to everything. It's impossible. You shouldn't be committed to everything because not everything is worth being committed to in the first place. If you're committed to everything, you're really, in essence, committed to absolutely nothing. Selection is the name of the game here. Priority. The reason why there are so many of us who would call ourselves disciples of Christ in this church is because we've made an intentional choice, a decision, and we've acted on it. It's the core of who we are. We know it's important, right? One side note here. You don't generally become a devoted disciple of Christ in an instant. It's a process. When Jesus says, come to me, and they came, they were newbies. It was over three years or so that he worked with his disciples, his trainees. Jesus moved them from their first commitment to being actually prepared to die for what they believed. For instance, the very first words of Jesus, public words of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of John, were to some of John the Baptist's disciples, and they're sort of asking, like, what's going on? Where are you living? What are you doing? And he says, well, come and see. Come and see. That's the first invitation Jesus gives. Onlookers are wondering what's going on. He says, well, come and see. What's he doing here? It's entry-level commitment, right? This is as low commitment as you can give. Come and check it out. That's why we say what we do to the community around us here at Southland. Come, come and see. Come and check us out. Look online. Catch the live stream. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to sacrifice anything initially. Just come as you are. Check it out. That's where Jesus starts. Come and see. Then he begins to move the disciples as a good teacher and mentor should. He moves them along. The next commitment is come and follow. First come and see. Now come and follow. Then follows a series of offers to meet their needs. In Matthew 11, he says, if you're tired, come to me and I will give you rest. In John 7, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. In John 5, he says, come to me and have life. In John 8, he says, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness anymore. In John 10, he says, those who come in through me will be saved. So he's inviting us to come and he's going to meet the needs in our lives. 
one of my favorite little, just short little verses, but just kind of brings it all home to me somehow. I don't know. Call me quirky. Is John 21, 12. After the resurrection, it's the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples. It's, he comes to them and they're fishing again. And he says, well, cast your nets. They haven't caught anything. Cast your nets. Net again, right? Cast your net on the other side of the boat. They catch all the stuff. And then he says, come and have breakfast with me. Bring the fish. Come and have breakfast. I just love that. I mean, talk about down to earth. Isn't that great? It's literally in the Bible, come and have breakfast, right? But as time passed, Jesus began to require more and more of his disciples. He's helping them grow in commitment. So in Mark 8, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, they must deny themselves, let go of their nets. That's what he's saying there. Deny themselves, let go of your nets, and take up your cross and follow me. In Matthew 8, 22, he says, come and follow me and let the dead bury the dead. He's turning up the heat now. He's requiring more and more commitment. The Bible says that when we get to heaven, there's going to be invitations when we arrive. He's going to say to us, come and share your master's happiness. Come and receive your inheritance. The third thing this verse teaches us is that discipleship is a relationship. It's not about rules. It's not about rituals. It's not about a formula. It's not about a bunch of expectations. It's simply about being with Jesus. Notice the phrase in the first verse, my servants must be where I am. Discipleship at its core is about being with Jesus. Be where I am. Walk with me. Follow me. This was his plan all along. If I'm walking, you're walking. If I'm in a boat, you're sailing too. If I'm running on the beach at 5.30 in the morning, so are you. His plan in Mark 3 says the plan was that they would be with him. There's that phrase again. Spend time with Jesus, and then he would send them out to proclaim the word. So what does it mean to be a disciple today? Obviously, Jesus isn't here physically. How do you be with Jesus today? Well, that's pretty straightforward. You still meet with him. You talk with him all the time. If you'll pardon the pun, you have a running conversation with Jesus Christ. I talk to him all the time. In fact, I can talk to him and talk to you at the same time. Many times I'm up here or I'm speaking to someone and I'm praying, help, help, to him while I'm talking to everyone else. Many times I'll even be on a phone and someone's talking to me. I'll say, Lord, Lord, like, give me some wisdom here. Give me the words that I need to say that would be from you to this person. Or it's a meeting or something like that. I talk to God when I'm driving or when I'm cycling or when I'm watching Jennifer mow the lawn while I sit in my easy chair. <laughs> when I first started conversations with God almost 45 years ago now, it felt like I was pretty much just a one-way conversation. I could never hear God speak to me. Not that I gave him much of a chance now that I look back. If I ever got a thought in my mind, I'd think, well, now is that really from God or is that me? But after you've been walking with a God for about 45 years, it gets better. Isn't that comforting? 45 years, no problem. After that, you're gravy. No, it doesn't happen like that. But it's a process, right? 45 years, it does get better. Now I go, that's not me talking to myself. That's the Lord putting that idea in my head. It gets clearer and clearer the closer and closer and the longer and longer you spend with him. That's what being a disciple is. The closer you get to following in his footsteps, like actually matching his footsteps through the sand or through the snow or whatever you want to picture, 
the more you're able to recognize his voice and hear him speak to you. When the devil puts an idea in your head, we call it temptation. When God puts an idea in your head, we call it inspiration. When you put an idea in your head, I call it stupid, really. It's stupid. (laughs) But the truth is, you've got to be with him. And the more time you spend with him, the more you talk with the Lord, the more you're going to grow as a disciple. It's just that simple. If you only have a little quiet time every day, you're not going to grow more than just a little. If you only talk to the Lord on the weekends in church, you're not going to grow much at all. But if you learn to talk to the Lord all the time, have a conversation about whatever is on your mind, you're going to really start taking on the form of a committed disciple because it's a relationship. Jesus said, I've got to spend time with him if I want to be a disciple. To be disciples, we must also love Jesus supremely. Well, that just makes sense as well. This is the second definition that Jesus gives. In Luke chapter 14, he says this, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must love me far more than your own mother, your own father, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters. Yes, more than your own life. You gotta let go of those nets too. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. What's he saying here? He's saying that your love for God is to be so intense that everything else pales in comparison. Kind of sounds like the first commandment, doesn't it? That doesn't mean you don't love other people. Actually, the more you love God, I'm convinced the more you're going to love other people. But he's saying exclusivity, supremacy belongs to God. Because you wouldn't have your family, you wouldn't have your kids, you wouldn't have the people, you wouldn't have friends, you wouldn't, all of that you wouldn't have without God in the first place. So he says, you're to love God more than anything else. As a disciple, there simply can't be anything more important to you than that. And of course, Paul, I'm not going to spend any time there, but Paul in 1 Corinthians says, you know, I'm hearing some stuff about you guys. Some say you're followers of Paul. Some say you're followers of Apollos. You know, and he just kind of goes on like, wait a minute. Who are we following here? We're all disciples. We're all following Jesus. That's what unifies us. And let me talk to guys for a minute here, if I could. If you're a dad or you're a husband... The greatest gift you can give your family, your wife, your kids, is to love God more than anything else. Why? Because when a dad or a husband loves God more than anything else, supremely, top of the list, it creates enormous security in the hearts and minds of your children and your spouse. Because they're thinking, he's not doing this on his own. He's getting great advice from the wisest one of all. they're, They're just secure knowing that you're not going to go off on some tangent because your eyes are firmly focused on Jesus himself. And they think, you know what? He's going to put our needs ahead of his own because that's what God tells him to do. The Bible says, just as Jesus gave his life for the church, husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives. I don't know of a greater challenge than that, guys. The more you love God, the more you're going to serve your wife and your kids. The greatest security you can give your family is to let them know that you love God more than anything or anyone else. There's a word for that in the Bible. Do you know what it's called when you love something more than anything else? It's called worship. Whatever you love the most, you worship. If you love your boat the most, you worship your boat. 
If you love your job the most, you worship your job. If you love your own body the most, you worship yourself. Worship is whatever you give your best love to. To be disciples, we must love Jesus supremely. The third, to be disciples, we must love others. Here's what Jesus said in John 13. If, and by the way, did you notice that every one of these phrases has an if in it? When he talks about disciples, there's always this if, this condition. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Not just love for me, but love for each other. He says the hallmark of being a follower of Jesus is not a bumper sticker. It's not a little Christian pin or a pendant around your neck. It's not a Bible verse on a t-shirt, as nice as all those things are. He says the proof that you're my disciples is that you actually love one another. We've already spent time on this in this series, which in essence says then that everybody has value. You've yet to lay eyes on someone for whom Jesus did not die. All people matter. So let me just zero in on one focus of this that particularly relates to the church and to being devoted disciples. In spite of all its imperfections, in spite of all its faults, in spite of all its full pause, in spite of all its failures, because it's made up of normal, ordinary, imperfect people like you and me, Jesus says his church, the church, matters. And then he proved it by dying for it. So if you don't love the church, you're not going to like heaven very much at all because that's all who's going to be there. And secondly, this is equally obvious. If we're identified as Christ followers, his disciples by loving others, what's the other necessary component in this equation besides ourselves? Others. You cannot be a disciple by yourself. There's not a single case of one-on-one -on -one discipleship in the New Testament. The choice to become and remain a disciple rests with individuals, but discipleship is always nurtured in community. Discipleship is not a course. Oh man, if I could go back and change some early thoughts and some way of describing things, this is one thing I would change. Discipleship is not a course you go through. It's a life you live. It's a life you live out, fostered in community of interdependence, support, teaching, admonishment. You cannot be a disciple in isolation. It's a contradiction in terms. You cannot follow Christ as an individual. Me and Jesus, we got a good thing going on here. Make a song about it. We don't need anybody else. We're good. You can't do it because one of the identifying marks is that you love other people. And the only way you're going to love other people is obviously you got to be around them. The verse says, if you, love one, if you have love for one another, that phrase is used 58 times one another in the Bible. It says we're to love one another, care for one another, help one another, serve one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. You're worried I'm going to do all 58 of them, aren't you? I'm not going to. We are to support one another, greet one another. The Bible says we were put on this planet to help each other out. As a disciple, you have to have a Christian church family and be in relationship with people because life is all about love. That's what makes having a relationship with Jesus different than religion. Did you know that in almost every single religion out there, the more you isolate yourself from humanity, the more holy you're considered to be? You name it. They all kind of go down this path. Isolate yourself. Get on a pedestal somewhere. Go off to a monastery or, or up on the top of a hill somewhere and get off by yourself. The holiest people are those who go off, 
off by themselves, hide themselves in caves or whatever, who separate themselves from sinful humanity so they can't be tainted by all the rest of us who are therefore evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty. So the more holy you are, the more you separate yourself from earth and from other people. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. Exactly the opposite. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was in the marketplace. Jesus was at parties. Jesus went to weddings. Jesus attended funerals. Because Jesus taught you can't learn to love unless you actually are around people to love. And even more so if they're unlovely people. No, don't look at them right now. But God says, I measure discipleship by how much you love. Not by your knowledge, but how much you love. We must spend time with Jesus. We must love him supremely. We must love others. These are some of the marks of discipleship, that we follow him, that we follow his ways 24-7. Let's sing about that. Would you stand? Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com. 